Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. It's all because of him. I wish he was here saying this. I would still have a lecture. Now we have to have a memorial lecture because he decided to move and uh, abandon us. I'm going to be selfish. I resent him for that. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I'm the only one. Uh, Herb Rummerstein was a mentor, a genius. This is a person who uh, dispel all prejudices. They were communists, someone would explain, and then Herb would respond, no! They were anarcho-syndicalists. Seventh shelf from the left, third level, fifth book, page 32. Second paragraph. He was his own computer. He was Silicon Valley before Silicon Valley. He specialized in, to put it bluntly, uh, commie hunting. Not that he minded hunting the Ku Klux Klan, but he thought uh, uh, retarded people were not a fair game. <laughs> the communists were. Uh, Herb not only continues to inspire us, but we cherish and pass on his method. For me, one of his greatest strengths was his humor. We made the sickiest jokes possible on the planet. And uh, that would disturb most of humanity, <clears throat> almost all the onlookers. Why? It's simple, it's a coping mechanism. If you deal with gore and the horrible, this is one way to approach it. And he helped me channel my own mischievousness into uh, a proper direction. He did it all the time. We miss him, and we always try to find worthy successors uh, to talk in his vein. Today we're privileged to have Dr. Jack Ziak, who told me a second ago, oh, just introduced me as an old spook. <laughs> uh, the list of Jack's accomplishments is lengthy, and the only thing that's not classified is that he was a great friend of her brother's <laughs> uh, Jack specializes in deception. He worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency, but he is an all-around counterintelligence expert. Without much more ado, I can amuse you with fluff, but I give you Dr. Jack Ziak, and I'm very thankful he could make it. Thank you, Monarch. Right. That was very, very kind of you. And I'd like to uh, welcome Pat Romerstein and her family. We're here, and I'm very, very happy you could make it back. Uh, as Marek said, Herb 
and the Romanstein family were dear friends. I did a lot of work with Herb over the years. He and I go back, I think I first met him either in the late 60s or early 70s. I don't recall it was so long ago. Uh, one of the most memorable moments I had with Herb was back in 1995 when NSA and CIA ran a joint conference on the release of the Venonity Crips. And it was an interesting conference. It was at the National War College. And in one of the auditoriums there, where we had a uh, uh, descending order of seats, Herb and I happened to be sitting behind one of the major perpetrators of the penetrations of the United States during and after World War II. And what I found interesting about that conference was that the people who betrayed the country, some of them who betrayed our country, especially with the nuclear penetrations, were invited to this conference. And they were completely unrepentant, including uh, people from the, uh, the Nation magazine. I think you could understand what I'm referring to here. And it so happened that where Herb and I sat, we didn't plan it that way, one of these people, one of the former penetrations, was sitting right in front of us. I'm sitting next to Herb. And anyone who knew Herb knew Herb couldn't keep his mouth shut, especially with the target like that in front of us. We had a great time. Because this guy was old by then, and if you had read obituaries lately, and that's one of the things I follow regularly, if I see I'm not in there, then I know, thank God. I can't and uh, here was this guy that we sat behind. I'll leave his name out. And he, he was a little long in the tooth, long in the hair. And he had a ponytail. And so Herb, being the provocateur that he was, said, Jack, do you have any scissors on you? And I said, Herb, I always carry my trusty little Swiss Army knife. And has scissors on it. And I could see this guy in front of us getting a little nervous. And Herb says, uh, you want to take a swipe and cutting the ponytail? And I said, yeah, let me try it. And we, indeed, were provoking. We'd never done that, obviously. <laughs> and uh, uh, I said, Herb, what are we going to call it when we get it? He says, how about if we mount it in, in a frame and call it the tail of a traitor, T-A-I-L, as in ponytail. This guy in front of us turned around, gave us a real rotten glare, and changed his seat. <laughs> it was wonderful. But another interesting aside from my work with Herb over the years, uh, and there was a witness to this, uh, Sherry, I traveled with Herb and Todd Leventhal, I think some of you know who Todd was, Todd is, I should say, and we were working with the Active Measures uh, Working Group, or the Counter Active Measures Working Group, on a trip to the Middle East, and we were in Israel. And uh, we had a wonderful time, and the best time we had <coughs> was when one of the meetings got canceled, and Herb, Todd, and I had a free afternoon 
So we, we traveled all over, we had a rental car, traveled all over, uh, back in those days, it was before the first Intifada, so it was still pretty safe. And we got down to see the uh, Dead Sea. We saw from a little distance the caves of Qumran, and we wanted to get up to Masada. Herb desperately wanted to see it, and I was willing on that. But they had a freak storm, very unusual for Israel at that time of the year, I think it was in March, late March, early April snow, sleet, and wind. And so not only was the cable car shut down, but the snake path going up was shut down. And uh, it was one of the most memorable trips I had with her. And I, I cherish those memories, Pat. He was a great guy and, and a dear, dear friend. One last thing on Herb before we get into the serious business here. Herb was working in the House Intelligence Committee. And back in the late 70s and early 80s, when I went back to the division that I started with in my old agency, I was tapped by the leadership who would say, Jack, you know, we're going to send you to give testimony to the house. We're going to throw you off the deep end of the pool so you get experience in briefing the house. The real reason for doing it was they didn't want to go. They didn't like going to to give the testimony to congressmen and senators. And being a young guy loaded with vinegar and otherwise, I said, yeah, I'd be happy to do it. And my point of contact for all of that was always her. And one of the, especially with the House um, Intelligence Committee, the Hipson. And we had the good fortune of being able to pre-coordinate uh, before I gave my presentation. So we were well prepared for what was going to be coming down the pike. I, I cherish those memories and I cherish those years of friendship. Thank you, Pat. Thank you. Okay, what we're going to do today is do a fast march through the issue of counterintelligence cultures. I have a lot to cover in right now less than an hour, but I want to get across the counterintelligence from the perspective of the way traditional societies like Tsarist uh, Russia, uh, China before the revolution, China after the revolution, Islamic societies and others have a different approach to counterintelligence. It is not mere spy chase. We tend to project from our own experiences. We have a, an NIH syndrome in the United States and other Western countries as well not invented here syndrome, uh, that the way we do it is the way everybody else perforce has to do it. And that's not the case with these systems. I want to make a case over the remaining time that we have to show how they view counterintelligence. So let's move on and see what happens here. Okay, there is a pedigree to this, and it just didn't happen in 2016 with our last national election. This has been going on for a long time. This approach, counterintelligence, it is inseparable from deception, from provocation, from disinformation, from activity meropriatia, or active measures, as it's called. It's been around for a long time. It began with, when we're talking about the Russians, with the Tsarist system. Russia was a counterintelligence state long before before it became the Soviet Union. What do I mean by that? Intelligence 
in Tsarist Russia was basically counterintelligence. I'm not saying they didn't do foreign intelligence. The Tsarist mil ministry, uh, the Tsarist military, did foreign intelligence very well, very effectively. In fact, one of the best SIGINT organizations uh, pre-World War I and during World War I was the Tsarist military SIGINT and common capability. Very, very good capability. But the focus of their security services is counterintelligence. Why? Because it was targeted on the domestic population. Why was that? To keep the monopoly power of the system in place. It was a different kind of counterintelligence from what we're used to. Our counterintelligence has a signature that's more akin to security, right, and counterespionage. We don't think in terms too much beyond that. This was different. The whole focus of the system was to penetrate real and imagined enemies keep them from overthrowing the system in power, the autocratic system. Now, they had a real dilemma with this in Tsarist Russia, a huge country, over well over 100 different nationalities, and they still have that problem in the Russian Federation today. Huge real estate, going from the time zones of what is now Central Europe, all the way to the coast of the Pacific. Uh, Sivakos, Kamchatka, Sakhalin Islands, etc. It's a large area to cover. <coughs> what a lot of people don't realize is that the Tsarist Security Service, in later years called the Okhrana, literally translates to guards. In fact, if you go to Russia today and visit Zerzhinsky Square, the little Zerzhinsky Square, and the old Lubyanka building, um, it's been a while since I've been there, but on the corner of the Lubyanka building, you'll see a brass plaque that says Okhrana, and that means guards, right? And the FSB, basically the successor to the KGB, the successor to the Chaika, the successor to the Okhrana, that's guards. Right? They're guarding the system, protecting the system. Their counterintelligence ethos has a different flavor to it. So you had a huge empire, but a relatively small Tsarist security service, the Okhrana. At the peak of its size, I believe it was 1916, they had about 16,000 effectives. That's not big. That's tiny for a counterintelligence service. And that service didn't really do foreign intelligence in the way we think of it today or the way the old first chief directorate of the KGB did it, or the way the SVR does it today. The SVR actually is the first standalone civilian foreign intelligence service created in 1991-1991 after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Prior to that, it was a chief directorate of the KGB, and the KGB was basically a counterintelligence service. Okay, so the Central focus of the Okhrana and the successors in the Soviet Union was counterintelligence. Now, how did the Okhrana overcome the limitations of its size? Leverage. Okay, what am I talking about here? Basically, you translate that into 
penetration through double agents, okay? provocation, deception. Those of you who have sat in my lectures in years past uh, know that there's a, a whole argo, a whole idiom. In fact, that idiom is so critical that back in 1972, the KGB published a top secret lexicon of counterintelligence terminology. That's how serious they took this stuff. They had a top secret history of the KGB. I'm a little intimately familiar with this because the, the top secret history of the KGB I was able to buy uh, back in around the time when things were coming apart in the Soviet Union uh, for a hundred bucks. And I did it out of pocket, my pocket. And I, at that time, I was in the Office of the Secretary of Defense on detail from DIA. The last nine years of my career was in OSD, uh, working issues of deception, counter-deception. Counter and I made a deal with my superiors. I said, this is a top secret KGB document. I bought it. It's mine. I will make it a gift to the U.S. government if the U.S. government will translate it so that we can get it out writ large as far as possible, unclassified. Okay. And I said there was one other stipulation that I put on. I picked a translator. If you, if you know anything about U.S. government contracting, you know, the lowest bid gets a job. Yeah. And you don't do that with this kind of information. Okay, so it got out there. And it's out there now. Uh, there's a, well, an Army website, I, I can't remember the name of it. I see some colleagues in the back, they may know what I'm talking about, attorney Q&A. Uh, but it's out there now. Then the second one that I got, the same people who sold me the top secret history wanted to sell me the top secret lexicon. And I started negotiating. And they backed up, no, 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 no. And finally they came and said, we will make it a gift. So I made the same deal, and we got that out. Now you may find if you go on Amazon or any other book search website, you could find a lexicon, not that one, but a lexicon, the same lexicon though, that was brought out by Matrokin. And the Brits who had Matrokin, Matrokin is dead now, he was a KGB defector. Um, the Brits got that translated and published. So you can, you can either get one off of the, I believe it's the Harmony website that the Army runs, or buy it off uh, uh, an Amazon site. Okay, so they did this through double agent operations. Okay? That's leveraged. Because penetrating the enemy isn't just to find out what the enemy is doing. The whole object is to control the enemy. And you control them by getting them to do your bidding, and then ultimately to affect their policy. That's what counterintelligence is about, in the way they do it. Let's learn real quickly here. Okay, that tradition moves on. Come the revolution, or up to the revolution, before the revolution. The major security problem of the Ukraine was primarily terrorism on the left. 
And there are several varieties of that, not just the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks were part of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. And the terminology of Bolshevik and Menshevik itself is deceptive because the root of Bolshevik is Bolshev, meaning larger, and Menshevik, Mensha, meaning smaller. The truth was just the opposite. The Bolsheviks were not the majority element of the um, uh, Social Democrats, they were the minority. In fact, when they came to power in 1917, they represented maybe 5% of the total Russian population. Masses don't make revolutions. Small groups have construed. Okay. And the Mensheviks were the majority of the Social Democrats in Russia. Okay. The elites were radicalized. Again, masses don't make revolutions, intellectuals don't. You had treacherous Czarist elites. It's like reading about the French Revolution. You want to get an account of what later happened in Russia? Read, for instance, one of the classics of the French Revolution by a scholar going back to 1932, which is when it was published, by the name of Pierre Guizot, and it's titled The French Revolution. You read through there, you get a sense of the radicalization of the elites and what it led to. I'm rereading it for about the third or fourth time. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking about our own contemporary situation. But to bring, that, bring it back to this, you had a similar repetition in Tsarist Russia. Uh, Lenin was not from the working class. He was from minor nobility. All of these people came from either landed nobility, lesser nobility, or deracinated nobility. You find the same thing happening in other countries as well, like China. Mao Zedong was not a poor peasant. His family represented large landowners, or representative of large landowner class. Okay, so how do you get into that? You penetrate, double agentry. Right? You, you penetrate the organization. And the object of counterintelligence in this perspective is not to wrap them up and put them away. The object is to identify and control, redirect their efforts against what they're up to. So what you're getting basically is a controlled opposition. You might argue, well, it didn't work in the end because the Soviets won. Well, I would argue that there are a whole bunch of other mitigating factors such as World War I. Were it not for World War I, and this is one of the great ifs, you know, what would happen if, were it not for World War I, you probably wouldn't have, would not have seen the Bolshevik Revolution. Right? We, we can discuss that in a few minutes. Who are some of these double agents? Well, we've got a very famous case, Azyev, the spy. Azyev was a, an Esser, as they were known, the Socialist Revolutionaries, short handle for it, Essers. And he was run by the economy. And he was carrying out all kinds of nasty things under the watchful eye of the Ukraine. This stuff can be very double-edged. Come back and bite that. Uh, it's, it's very, very difficult, especially in a revolutionary situation, to run double-agent operations. It's like uh, 
FBI penetrating crime organizations. You're going to have an effective penetration of a crime organization. You're going to have dirty hands. Okay? It's, it's not going to be clean. Well, the same thing with this. But it wasn't just Asif. You had one of the senior members of the Bolshevik delegation in the Duma, a version of the parliament. You have a Duma today in Russia. A man by the name of Roman Malinovsky, who was the Ukrainians. To use KGB parlance, he was Nash. <laughs> he belonged to them, to the Ukrainians. Lenin was warned many, many times about it, and he refused to do anything about it. That's, that's one that still has to be explored. Stalin, wow, this one really gets, gets into one of the troublesome issues of Soviet history. You bring up Stalin today as having been an Ukrainian Stukach, right? a stupid penetration operation. And you'll get a violent reaction, not only in Putin's Russia, because there's a lot of rehabilitation of Stalin going on, has been going on for a long time, by the way. Uh, but even among the American left and in academia in general, Russian area studies, Soviet area studies, when I was coming out of the system, Stalin was not, meaning theirs, the Okanagan. There are a number of good books. One of the best that I would recommend is by a Russian-Jewish emigre who spent years in the Gulag when he tried to escape in the early 1950s in among the worst of the Soviet Gulag camps, a man by the name of Roman Brachman. I got to know Roman. Never met him face to face. We dealt primarily by the phone and in mail, simply because we could never get together. He was living in New York at the time. He was doing his best to get his book out titled Stalin's Secret File. But he wasn't the worst, the, the first rather, to chronicle this. There were several others before. Go back to the revelations of Alexander Olaf, an early defector in the late 1930s from uh, in fact, he was in Spain. He was the resident, as they're called, station chief in, uh, in Spain during the Civil War. Um, but we, you know, I make a strong case for Stalin having been under Ukraine control. And there's a whole, whole series of things that we could go through on that. But this was characteristic. Now, if you say that Stalin was an Ukraine Stukach, you can understand why the Soviets would go ballistic over it, because it brings the credibility of the whole system into question. Right? Some people claim that Lenin was an Okrana penetration agent. I don't quite agree with that. What I would agree was that he was highly penetrated, his staff, they were reading his mail, the Okrana. But he was an agent of Imperial Germany. And I want to do a little sidebar on this now, just to explore this a little bit. We think of rich leftist billionaires today financing left-wing movements. You know who I'm talking about. They're all over the place. All right? That's not unusual. Back at this time, in World War I, for instance, there was a man who was a member of the Social Democratic Party of of um, Imperial Germany, 
who was financing the Bolshevik Party. He was a very wealthy individual, came from Odessa originally, now in the Ukraine, uh, and he was working with the German general staff. He and the German general staff were, were funding the Bolshevik underground movement to knock Russia out of the war, World War I. That's counterintelligence, folks, in the way they do it. So I would argue that it's no wonder that Lenin didn't want to do anything about Malinovsky, because he had a few things under his own bed uh, that if you dug deep enough. By the way, the, the business on the, this millionaire, multi-millionaire, the papers associated with that, the, the documents associated with that from the German foreign ministry files of the, of the um, World War II era under the, um, the uh, monarch um, were destroyed fortuitously in air raids in World War II. Okay, you can't, you can't find them, very difficult to access, but there's plenty of other collateral information that supports the whole idea of Lenin being funded by the Germans to knock Russia out of the war. Yeah, the whole business of the sealed train, where here you had a provocation coming across the rails in a rail car, sponsored by the German general staff, who knew how to do political warfare, which is the kind of stuff we're talking about here. Okay, so foreign intelligence wasn't really so much uh, a, a foreign intelligence operation as it was external counterintelligence. That's how they viewed it. So for instance, there was an organization called the Paris Okhana, subordinated to the Ministry of Interior of Tsarist Russia in St. Petersburg, the Department of Police, that had a major office in Western Europe, in Paris, and they had subordinate offices as well. And they were there to collaborate and cooperate with Western intelligence services to get encounter, get information and counter operations of the Russian revolutionaries, whether they were SRs or Bolsheviks or Mensheviks. So it was called the Foreign Agency, but it was really a counterintelligence service. And by the way, uh, before the end of the Tsarist uh, autocracy and the collapse of the Ukraine, the Foreign Agency was run in Paris by a former revolutionary whom the Okhrana had turned. Okay? Very, very interesting. These are, this is an interesting period to study. Oh, this is one of my favorites. I call it 7.62 millimeter pistol round, Nagant counterintelligence. It's a classic picture of a checkout officer. By the way, in recent years, um, I think within the last six or seven years, one of the characteristic features of the Cheka uniform was reintroduced in the FSB under Putin. Black leather. Okay. The long black leather coats with the belt. Okay. Characteristic of the Cheka. And guess who copied them? Any guesses? China. The Nazis. The Nazis. The SS. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah so, so there was a lot of interaction. There was a love-hate relationship between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. And if we had time, we'd go into that. But here's an example of revolutionary justice. He was investigator. You know, this character here, that's a 7.62 Nigant. Uh, you can still find these at gun shows, by the way. I'm giving myself away. I like to troll these things to see what kind of Russian weaponry is, is, is on the, the stalls these days. And he was investigator. He was magistrate. Execution of sentence. All right? They call these things the revolutionary tribunals, all run by the Chaka, secret police. Okay. This is counterintelligence with a vengeance. Right? We, we can go over the, there's the Russian at the bottom, but what it's saying is, the title of that is, look, my friend, you know me. There are some old films out there, and our host, Professor uh, Horakevich, has shown me some of them. I access some of them as well. The execution style of these people, it's still around. We call it the Descabello style. It's a term from bullfighting. The elegance by which you dispatch the bull. Well, they had a style to execution as well in the basements of the Lubyanka and the Fortable Prison and others scattered around the country. There was a shot, I don't mean to get so graphic, but a shot to the nape of the neck uh, using hollow point ammunition. And one of the reasons for that was to demonstrate what happens to the enemies of the state. Okay. A side benefit of it was that if they gave the corpse to the family, there was no possibility of an open casket because the face would have been blown. And this is what we're dealing with here. And, and this is what characterized the rest of the Soviet experience. All right, let's look at this continuum. Uh, contrast between your Quran and the Cheka when it comes to counterintelligence issues. Well, some people would argue that, yeah, they're the same organizations. I would argue that difference in degree makes for difference in kind. All right? You go back through the figures, and in my book, Chakisti, A History of the KGB, I, I took some time off from my job to research and, and write that book. One of the things that fascinated me was once I get into the data, and the comparisons of statistics. The Okana was a regular, relatively uh, cheap group when it came to executions. Their figures were so low, they couldn't even match throughout the history of the Okana, couldn't even match the first year of Soviet rule when it came to executions. Nowhere near it. Same thing with incarceration. But the tradition began. The, the, uh, Sending of people out to the camps, exile. Under the czars, it was a little bit different. For instance, you could read, you could write. One of the reasons Stalin, in addition to have been, having been an Okrana double agent, um, was able to get out of there was the security was kind of lax. Now, geography played a part in this. If you're exiled, above the Arctic Circle, or out on the transit, there's no way you're going to walk out of there. And you're frequently exiled to a village. And the local constabulary would keep an eye on you. So, and you, you were billeted then with a local peasant. 
This was Stalin's experience, and others as well. That never happened in the Soviet Union. Never. Okay, so difference in degree makes for difference in kind. I like to quote Machkevich. He's a Pole who wrote a book titled The Time for Provocation. Wrote it in, I believe, 1962, and it wasn't translated and published in English until 2009. And Professor Hodakevich very kindly gave me a copy. The title of that book captures a lot of what we're talking about. Because this style of counterintelligence operations involves provocation, or to use this, the Russian term provocatio. Read some of the Russian press today, especially releases coming out from Putin when he's talking about different things and reaction that we may take against him in response to some of his operations, how quickly he drops the term, that is an American or British or French or German provocation. Okay? He's projecting. This is projection. This is their style. And the triumph of provocation, if you go through this book, I highly recommend it, by the way, uh, that's the title of the book. You can find it on Amazon. You go through this book, one of the first cases that they have, and that one of the largest chapters in that book, is, a, is an account of the trust operation. Their first major strategic deception operation. They have multiple targets, domestically and internationally. And do they take this seriously? You bet. On one of my trips, well, I should say my last trip, to Russia after the Soviet Union. I was there when it was still the Soviet Union, the darkest days of the Cold War, when Brezhnev was still in power. Uh, but in the 90s, I had the good fortune through some connections of people I was traveling with, all former intel types, one of whom was a head of security for a major oil company that operated in Russia. And operating in Russia, he had to deal with KGB companies or security of his oil fields in Western Siberia. We got a tour of the KGB uh, Museum. Okay. And it was in the FSB building, not in the SVR building. FSB being the prime successor to the KGB. And uh, when we walked into the museum, the very first thing we saw was a huge display of the trust, their premier provocation strategic deception. They still teach that in the various FSB and SVR schools. They take it seriously. At a counterintelligence focus, all right, we look at when does the FSB celebrate its anniversary? Just had a celebration this past November. You'll get, you can get confusion between October and November. October was under the old Julian calendar, and November was when they switched over to the Gregorian calendar. So we'll just say the November one. So they celebrate it in November. When does the SVR celebrate its anniversary? It goes back to the creation of the first chief directorate, what we knew as the first chief directorate, in 1920. So it was three years before they created a standalone, not even standalone, a department of the Cherka for foreign intelligence. So again, Counterintelligence drives the system. If you look at old organization charts of the KGB or the FSB today, you will, you will find 
most everything focused on counterintelligence and internal security. Okay, SVR does foreign intelligence. But I can tell you, up at Mount Alto, where the Russian embassy is, you will find a FSB resident in addition to an SVR resident. Okay, so counterintelligence still rules in so many ways. We can discuss that too. Okay, the whole object was societal control, penetration, atomization of society. You atomize society so they can't link up. People link up in opposition. If they do link up in opposition, you penetrate them and you manipulate them. This is what they do with the trust. And there are a whole host of other organizations that they set up like that. For instance, one that still exists today. It's called the Eurasians. You ever hear the name of Alexander Dugin, D-U-G-I-N? Anybody who follows the entourage of Putin will come up will come across the name of Dugin, Alexander Dugin. He, he made his one of his spurs in the last 20 years or so with the Eurasians. You know when the Eurasians were formed? It was another alleged opposition group, a phony, a notional opposition group in the 1920s. The Trust and the Eurasians were only a couple of multiple operations like this that were targeted primarily domestically. And then the foreign dimension was, as with the Okrana, to get those emigres who had escaped after the Russian Revolution and were running opposition uh, organizations and operations back against the Soviet Union. So it was, again, like external counterintelligence. Obviously, they did more than that, going after others. So the societal control, so the, the true heir to to Lenin and Zerzhinsky, Zerzhinsky being the, the founder of the Chekhov, the father of the Soviet secret police, the Poles like to tell the story that uh, Zerzhinsky obviously wasn't Russian, he was Polish, he was a renegade Pole. And he should be canonized as a saint because he killed so many Russians. <laughs> And this is when mass murder commenced. Right out of the gate, mass murder began. And so Stalin is the, the you know, logical successor to all of this. All this poppycock about Lenin or about uh, Trotsky and the Mensheviks <coughs> and right-wing Bolsheviks, etc. Um, that's irrelevant. Uh, Trotsky was one of the founders of the secret police, of the Chetka. Not only was he the founder of the Red Army and the GRU, Soviet military intelligence, he was the, one of the founders of the Chetka. But he never internalized the license because he allowed himself to be penetrated. And that is a whole other story by itself, uh, which in the final analysis, the contest between Trotsky and Stalin was a no-brainer. Now, de-Stalinization did not extend to the organs. <coughs> what I mean by the organs, the security services and the foreign intelligence services, counterintelligence services. So that would be the MVD at the time of the collapse, the KGB, the GRU, and a whole host of others. They, the, the only thing that happened to the KGB was in addition to downsizing and the name change, 
was that they split up the KGB into several different organizations. The net effect of all of that was that all, most of it, migrated back to the FSB. The only two things that didn't migrate back to the FSB were foreign intelligence and the bodyguards. The bodyguards, the old ninth chief directorate from Stalin's head, are a standalone security service reporting directly to Vlad Putin. It's another counterintelligence service that targets the rest of the services. These are Putin's Praetorian Guard. Okay. Andropov's long tenure, Andropov comes in in 1967 after the major period of so-called destalinization. He runs everything in the KGB until 1982. He dies as General Secretary of the Communist Party in 82. Uh, but he helped to solidify that tradition. And he raised it to a more sophisticated level. We'll look at that. Um, before I get into these things, what, what he did was, after the ferment following Stalin's death, where a lot of personal scores were settled, Maria being among the first victims, because there was fear among the party apparatchiki, the senior apparatchiki, that uh, Berea you know, was, was going to be the next Stalin. He had all the books. He had all the files. He knew where all the bodies were buried. This is an example of where the party teamed up. They co-opted the military, and they preempted Berea, and with military muscle, arrested him, had a quick kangaroo trial, and he was executed. And we're not going to leave him around for a long time. Once all that dust settled, then in comes um, Andropov in 1967, a year after Khrushchev is canned. No, three years after Khrushchev is canned. And he then puts the KGB on a much more professional footage to include the institutionalization of active measures and deception, whereas before that, it was carried out through a variety of mechanisms. Now he centralizes it within the first chief director of the KGB. And its acronym for a while was called Slujba A, Service A. And uh, one of the first chiefs, the first chief of that was Agayans in my second bullet there. But the CIFOs, ethos, migrates. This is when the Soviet Union steps out in the wake of Stalin's death and starts working with the national liberation movements in the third world. And what you get is the export of the counterintelligence state. You find wherever they get client states, even if they're not communist states, they build a KGB system. Okay, that was in the Middle East. You saw that in Egypt. You saw that in Libya. You saw it in Yemen. And on top of that, what they did was a socialist division of labor where they recruited, they didn't recruit, they told the Poles, they told the Czechs, they told the Romanians, and so forth. You will work with this group. You will work with such and such a group. For instance, the East Germans, one of the tasks they got was to work with the Yemenis in, in the southern tier of Arabia. 
these Germans also worked with the, uh, uh, in Mozambique. Some of these Germans worked from the Stasi and their foreign intelligence service, the HVA, worked in Libya and in Egypt. And in each of these, you had Soviet cadres from the KGB and from the GRU working with these organizations. So you get that style transplanted from the KGB in Moscow and the GRU in Moscow into these various third world countries. And KGB organization goes with it. Uh, and the rise of Slujba'a, so to say, becomes institutionally ensconced with General Agayats. It's a very famous and wily Armenian general in the KGB. I knew several defectors who knew him, and they said he was one of the most effective operators when it came to active measures against the West. And in fact, the whole peaceful coexistence strategy was one of the things that Ivyance was instrumental in designing, along with the, the International Department of the Central Committee and the Inter International Information Department of the Central Committee. Um, the Central Committee we should view as the general staff for these kinds of operations, and then there are operating organs for the security services, KGB and GRU and NVD to a certain extent. Then you get the Soviets involved in international terrorism. And this is where we, we got into some very, very interesting dust-ups in the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, because we, we had a good, good signature of the Soviet presence with so many of these, uh, um, these, these revolutionary groups. Uh, the Red Army Factor, uh, the IRA and the PIRA. Uh, groups throughout the Middle East, like the uh, uh, PLO and, the, and, and various other groups. In fact, getting back to the business of, of uh, Socialist Division of Labor, on um, an inspection trip I was a member of, uh, we were inspecting the attaché system, which belongs to the Defense Intelligence Agency, and we hit all of the bloc countries, starting in Moscow, worked our way down from Warsaw down through uh, Bucharest. When we got to Bucharest, one of the interesting things that I experienced was the, the defense attaché there happened to be a friend of mine who I knew before he, he deployed to Bucharest, um, warned me. I said, I, you know, I want to get a feel for uh, Ceausescu's Bucharest. And he said, okay, there are areas you've got to stay away from. And I was using a, an embassy card driven by one of his warrant officers. And I said, what's that? He said, the PLO officers. Romania was given the subcontract of working with the PLO, okay, when it was under Yasser Arafat. This, the time frame for this, by the way, is 1975. And we violated our defense attaché's instruction. We did a quick drive-by. And sitting in front of this, this old storefront building were a bunch of PLO types sitting with AK-47s on their laps. This is in a communist country. Okay. The Makarov pistols on their hips. Think about that. This is in a communist country. And then when General Pacheco 
the facts that actually he was reporting before he defected. We got more information on that. They, the Securitate, uh, their version of the KGB, was required to provide various entertainments for Yasser Arafat. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't need to get too candid on this. But this was the way this system operated. And so what that led us to do when it came to this whole business of the Soviets and international terrorism, and this was capped, by the way, with the assassination attempt on John Paul II in 1981. Okay? We saw enough of intelligence to show us, to give us the, the insight that there were KGB signatures on this all over the place. And yet, we ran into an awful lot of opposition in the intelligence community to, to, to follow where the, you know, to connect the dots, etc. I won't go into the information because it, a lot of it I'm sure is still classified. But there was an awful lot of opposition to that. One of the reasons for that was, you know, what do you do if you could prove that the Soviets were involved in the assassination or the assassination attempt of the Pope? We found out much later that indeed they were. Uh, and this was in the documents that came out of the Russian state archives, which happened to be Politburo and Central Committee documentation. Now, this is one of the problems we have with documentation when people say KGB archives. No, we didn't get into KGB archives. Nobody does. You don't get into GRU archives. Nobody does. You might get into the files of some of the Union Republic KGBs as the system was collapsing in the late 80s and early 90s and get some of their files that leached out. But the bulk of the information that gave us the insights were KGB and GRU and MVD reports to the Central Committee, which became the files of the Russian Federation. And there was a Russian emigre who had been a dissident, and we had an exchange, uh, the head of the Chilean Communist Party, Louis Portobolon, was exchanged for Vladimir Bukowski. After the Soviet Union collapse, Bukowski, who had been a prisoner in the Gulag and in, in uh, insane asylums, this is one of the things the KGB did, that idea goes all the way back to Catherine the Great, if you disagreed with the system, you had to be, you were certifiably nuts, okay? So you, if you weren't insane before you went in for treatment, you were insane when you came out because they treated you with psychotropic drugs, okay? He was able to get back in, in that brief window when things opened up in Rielsen, and he took a hand scan, and he got into the party archives, which were the Russian state archives, and he scanned document after document. That's the document. I don't know if the information I'm going to refer to now, but we have the inside memo from Chedrikov, then head of the KGB, to Andropov. Um, then, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, Chedrikov was a senior KGB official to Andropov, who was the head of the KGB, talking about uh, the assassination of John Paul II. Okay, so he, Paul Kangor, by the way, has that. So go on, you know, do a search on Paul Kangor, and you will find that documentation. But let me move on quickly. Um, 
KGB Prussians, okay, they had a good thumb. They, they were a lot better than they were under Stalin, in the sense that they were a little more sophisticated. Okay, Stalin, you know, when you talk about the KGB knuckle draggers, eh, there was a certain reality to, to that description. They got better after that. And they recognized that the system was going to come down. And they started making accommodations. Among the things they did, started creating offshore banks, setting up companies, letting out very capable individuals from the gulag and the prisons. You had two levels of, uh, of incarceration, the prisons and the gulag. Most of the people were in the gulag, the prison camps. Letting people out like uh, Boris Berezovsky. Okay, remember that name? He was one of the early oligarchs. Uh, he died in a mysterious circumstance several years ago in exile. He was a supporter of Putin. And then they butted heads. Okay. And uh, they saw the system was going to sink. They started preparing for the post-Soviet system. Okay. You want to get a little idea on this. Back in the late 90s, a study was done, of which I was a participant, in a special study group run by the Center for Strategic and International Studies on Russian organized crime. And we saw how easy it was for a criminal system, like the Soviet Union, to transition into a, a Wild West capitalist oligarchic system we, see, we saw in the 90s, and which was regularized now under Putin. Okay, and it's become the KGB state. So I say the KGB never, never was really reformed. There was a, the first head of the KGB after the Soviet Union collapsed was here in this room back almost 30 years ago now, in 1992, I believe it was, Makati. And as a, as a um, offer of goodwill to the United States government, he brought the plans for the penetration, the technical penetration, of our new embassy in Moscow. That was really amazing. KGB hated it for it. He was saying, as a number of others did, you are not going to reform the system unless you get rid of the KGB. All right? KGB is there. I don't know where Makati is. Okay, but he's, he's no longer in any position. Okay, so it was never, ever reformed. So what they did was they made plans for surviving. And hence you get, you get this, this business of, well, I'll give you an example. Um, I live in Great Falls. There was a house, a um, very expensive house, that I found out from FBI friends was bought by a former party chief in the Central Committee who oversaw their pharmaceutical empire. He privatized that to himself, okay? And he became a multi-millionaire, if not a billionaire overnight. Okay? These guys bought property all over Western Europe, England, the United States, Central Park, here in Northern Virginia, all over. And that's the kind of system that resulted uh, from the collapse of the Soviet Union. There's a story that's told uh, in 1991 when the coup, the KGB coup failed in Moscow, 
in September of 91, and the crowds commandeered a crane, and they went into Zerzhinsky Square. They put a noose of steel cable around Iron Felix's neck, and they pulled him off his pedestal. Okay? I saw where they put him. He was remounted in a park next to the Fortable Prison. A KGB colonel was looking through one of the top four windows down on the scene. And he was quoted as saying, we'll be back. So Arnold Schwarzenegger was not the only one. <laughs> we'll be back. Let me move on here. The birth of the, well, the, the king of coup-making blows KGB, you know, some of the less sophisticated elements of it. Um, the head of the KGB at that time, um, they, they blew it. And, and you had elements of the party apparatus that knew the end was near. And one of these happened to be Yeltsin. And he was able to tough it through, and we got the birth of the Russian Federation. He never did anything to the KGB, as I mentioned with the Kati. Okay. And that was one of the major problems. Okay, so the, you get the Yeltsin into uranium. All right, he starts bringing them back. As I mentioned before, you had the creation of standalone intelligence services that were carved out of the KGB, with the exception of foreign intelligence and the bodyguards. They were all brought back in. And that began under Yeltsin, okay, the arch-democrat. Right? Uh, they rebranded the KGB and went through several name changes before they settled on FSB, the, uh, the security service uh, of uh, the Russian Federation. Okay. Then you have the rise of the Soviki. The, these are the security captains. They were peppered even before the collapse of the Soviet Union in the Duma. Okay, they became members of the Duma, like members of Congress or members of Parliament in the UK. Okay, along with the oligarchs, and they were teamed up. And yeah, for instance, there is a committee that oversaw, or still oversees, the security services. The overwhelming majority of the members are either KGB or MVD, when I say KGB, I'm talking generically, or the GRU. Okay, so that would be like having the intelligence community sitting, occupying the seats of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence here in the United States in Congress. Okay, so these people came to the fore. And when you when you look at the people that were charging with penetrating the US electoral system, etc., they come from this category. This these slices of the Russian uh, ruling elite. Okay, and the remnants of the OCC, the Central Committee, and then the KGB and the general staff, acting measures operates. They morphed into Putin's federation structure. I don't have an organization chart with me, but you could almost do a one by one comparison with the old information department, the international information department, et cetera, and the structures that are in the, uh, uh, the presidency of, of Putin today, his presidential office structure. And you even have the persistence of the old war affairs tradition, i.e., you know, assassination. Uh, back in the early 1980s, when I was talking about the controversy over assassinations, there were elements in the intelligence community who insisted that the Soviet Union didn't do that anymore. Now, number one, that simply wasn't true. 
They deceived us, and we fell for the deception. When I say us, I'm talking at large. I, I excuse myself from that one because I was one of the guys who were arguing with them on it. What the Soviets did, they took that old wet affairs operation, the Russian term is Mokriya Jala, literally blood wet affairs, and they hid it in the best protected element of the KGB, which was the illegals director. The illegals directorate are those people, they, they run the penetrations without diplomatic cover of long-term, deep-hidden penetrations of Western and other societies. Okay, we saw an example of that with the mass arrest of a whole bunch of them in 2010 here in the United States. Okay, so they hid it in the illegals directorate. So it didn't come up on any intelligence report. You saw no comms being reflected from the KGB or GRU comms directorates. You saw very little human reporting on it. So the conclusion from the people who didn't want to believe that the Soviets still, uh, still did this stuff was they got rid of it. Simply wasn't true. Still there, as we saw with the recent assassination attempt on uh, Sweet Paul and his daughter. And then they won in 2006 on Litvinenko using Colonial 210. Okay, so that's still there. You know, the refinements of that. And then finally, the moves into the Middle East and Edward, uh, elsewhere, begun under the Soviets and followed through under uh, Putin. Now, said we were going to cover some others as well. Let me bring up China very quickly. Right? The bureaucratic totalitarian state is far older than the Tsarist, the Soviet, and the Russian traditions of today. For instance, Max Weber, German sociologist, and Karl Wittfogel, another sociologist, one of the founders of the German Communist Party, and one of the founders of the Frankfurt Group. Remember that term. These were the ones who penetrated the United States and marched through all the institutions. Okay, we're wondering why we have democratic socialists today. Back on the Frankfurt Group. The long tail on it, a march through the institutions. Okay. The, even the Bolsheviks, Marx and Lenin, were concerned that the system they were going to bring into existence was just a repetition of the old Asiatic despotism which was a common term used in debates back in those days, had no ethnic connotations whatsoever. I'm sure somebody would try to do something, oh, you're a racist, uh, with this. No, they had serious concern about this, because the old Chinese structure was a highly bureaucratized counterintelligence state. And you know, the influence, they influenced the Mongols, the Mongols influenced them. If you look, read through Mongol, the Mongol way of war, and you find that counterintelligence activities were paramount. Deception, psychological warfare. The Mongols were a light infantry primarily. They defeated armies far superior both in numbers and in artillery and everything. But they were using leverage, okay? The same kind of leverage we talked about early in the presentation. And the circle completes, all right? Russia assists in the reimposition of this despotism. In fact, in 1928, they declared, one of the common term congresses, they declared that the Asiatic despotism argument is finished, and Karl Wittfogel had to get out of Dodge. He was in Moscow when that happened, and Trotskyites warned him, get the hell out of here. You're next. 
And so he resurfaces in China. He was a Sinologist. Move on. Classic counterintelligence guidance on the Chinese. Everybody has to vote, has to uh, quote Sun Tzu. All right. Well, for good reason. And I, by the way, I would recommend this particular translation of uh, Sun Tzu. It came out in 1993, and the translation and commentary was by Roger Ames. If you look at in that particular, I have the hardback version of it. You'll find on page 171. Here again, the issue of double agents. From this information from double agents, we will know what false information to feed to our expendable spies to pass on to the enemy. And in a later paragraph, we see, and since the key to all intelligence is the double agent, this operative must be treated generously. Meaning, pay him well, because he's producing. And this means that you get, you're, you're running double agents not just to get intelligence. It's more than espionage. You're penetrating it to manipulate your enemy. Get him, you're controlling his policy. You're getting into his head. That's how they do counterintelligence. All right. The Latin tradition. Right? We talked about the Middle East. Talked about China briefly. Let's talk about here. When Castro came to power, what happened? Close collaboration with not only the KGB, but the GRU as well. So that you get, for instance, the Lourdes station, SIGINT station, okay, run, I think, jointly by the old KGB SIGINT directorate, uh, the old 8 and the 16th, and then the GRU as well. Right? But more important than that, they recreated the KGB controlling mechanism of society, the same way they did in the Soviet Union, to include execution. Now, I love it when I see people running around with Che Guevara t-shirts. This guy's a mass murderer. And I mean mass murderer. Romanticizing you know, monsters like Che. Repeat it in Grenada. Remember Grenada, 1983? That was a Cuban operation. And then in Nicaragua. The KGB subcontract to the Cuban contract. I'm almost done. Then Venezuela. Just for a quick snapshot of what's happening today, okay? Why is Maduro lasting so long? Mm -hmm. right. The Cubans, with support from the Russians, are running that system, basically. Okay, they control the military. And the Russians recently, uh, I saw reports, and I'm working from unclassified. I don't have any clearances anymore. But I feel very safe in saying this. Recent reporting, you run across the Wagner Group or the Wagner Group. Uh, you may have seen where the U.S. military, some months ago last year, had a dust up with them, and we took out several hundred in combined air and artillery strikes. Okay, the Wagner Group reported uh, reportedly is or elements of it are in Cuba. Who are they? My assessment is that they're a general staff operation, contracted, in quotes. There we say mercs. Okay. They played around with this stuff for plausible deniability. Okay. It's very public, though, so it's going to be hard to deny that. All right, very quickly, Islam, Said Kutub. Yeah. He loved Lenin. 
So you see the signature of that kind of control in the Muslim Brotherhood. Okay, Muslim Brotherhood is focused, the way it's structured and operates, is focused on that kind of organization. Not necessarily with the Salafists. They're a little bit different. They're focused more on the ideology of Islamism. Right? Long-term Soviet presence. They have a long, long history of this. They were fighting Islamic, they were doing counterinsurgency wars against Islamist movements in Central Asia for decades, literally. Very quick little sidebar example. In, the, in 1979, when the Soviets invaded, the organization I was working in, I was running a branch um, that covered the, we had responsibility for the KGB. We saw the way the KGB and the GRU to a certain extent, but mostly the KGB went in with Spetsnaz operations, uh, precursor operations to the full, uh, before the full invasion. We interviewed, debriefed, a couple of Afghan generals who had defected. Very fortunate to get to them. One of the things they, one of them told us, and we were a small group, and so we, we were able to concentrate on this kind of debriefing. And he told us that when they came in, when the KGB came in, they had lists of old Basmachi leaders. Basmachi leaders, who are they? They were the insurgent leaders from the Basmachi uprising in Central Asia in the 20s and 1930s who found refuge in Afghanistan. You talk about counterintelligence memory. It's a different system. Okay. And I think I mentioned to you the uh, Central Committee East European involvement with international terrorism, the Afghan experience, then morphs into ISIS, Iran, and Syria. Very quick one on Iran, by the way. A defector came out to the Brits in 1982, a man by the name of Kuzichkin. I debriefed them here in the United States. We didn't have a very good debriefing because it was a, a group gaggle. And it was very, very hard to get good questions into them. So I did a lot of work with the Brits over the years. I was working with the British Military Intelligence Group where we had a joint program going. I traveled to the UK three or four times a year. And uh, so they arranged with MI6 for myself and one of my subordinates to spend a whole week with this guy, Kuzichkin. And he gave us one in verse on what happened in Iraq. When the, the Soviets made a strategic decision, just like they did in Israel, after they supported independence for Israel, they supported partition in 1948, and then they did a 180 and sided with the Arabs. Okay, a strategic decision. They did the same thing in Iran. They threw the Communist Party of Iran, the Tudor Party, under the bus. And I literally mean under the bus, because then they got executed by Khomeiniites after Khomeini came to power. And they decided to side with the Imams, and it's been that way ever since. Okay? A strategic readjustment. All right? This is the last one. I'm, I'm almost ready. Uh, let me read it for those who can't read it. I uh, can't see it. This is from Charles Fairbanks. It's a very, very telling account. The Bolshevik taste for the absolute, for utopia, and violence seems far distant now, far distant now in the West that gave it birth. But it has reappeared in the Islamic world. The recreation of a universal caliphate, which ceased to rule almost in lands about the year 800, has become a widespread demand of radical Islamist groups, Islamic groups from Morocco to Central Asia, 
A demand as abstract and utopian as communism itself. In pursuit of such aims, a cult of death is as pitiless a stone as gained widespread ascendancy over radical Muslims. The war against this style of tyranny demands the same energies and meets the same Western implications as the war against Stalin. It's a very, very compelling paragraph. And let's see. Nope. <laughs> and it's KGB saying, give us the man we'll make. We'll find you a crime. All right? But think of prosecutorial misconduct. <laughs> okay. You know what I'm trying to. And then finally, one of my favorites. If you try to read it in the Cyrillic, it's it's not a translation. I just took the Cyrillic and did. Never give a sucker an even break. That's an old comment on W.C. Fields, you know, from the films of the 1930s, W.C. Fields and May West. Okay. I, I say, Vlad Putin, Xi Jinping, and Ali Khamenei channeling W.C. Fields. All right. Uh, I've spoken enough. I'm sorry for running over. Uh, I'll finish. All right. I thank you for your time.